On today's Ringer NFL show, we discuss Philip Rivers' retirement. We look back at some of the divisional round games to try to help forecast what we're going to see in the conference championship games. Coming up next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your fantasy team, we know you personalize your entire day. That's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices may vary by state. Options selected by customer availability and eligibility may vary. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerNFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerNFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Chris Vernon, and joining me as he does every Wednesday is Warren Sharp. Warren! What's up, Chris? We only have two more game days for the NFL season. We got to soak these in, my friend. Soak these in. Are you getting a little sad? I've been too busy to get sad, uh, but <laughs> I- I'm sort of starting to get a little bit sad thinking about it. But yeah, it's... um. It's getting down to the wire here. It's a it's a fast and furious time, uh, even though there's only a couple of games, one of which I'm a little bit more involved in. So it just becomes uh, it's just a shitload of work, but it's a ton of fun. Understood. All right. So before we get into all the games that took place over the weekend, we need to comment on the huge news that came out this morning, which was Philip Rivers called it a career um, after he spent the year with the Indianapolis Colts, after he had spent 16 years in San Diego with the Chargers, um, 39 years old, never played in a Super Bowl, but that's pretty much the only thing there uh, that's missing on the resume. Fifth in NFL history and passing yards, um, eight-time Pro Bowler, fifth in league history with 421 touchdown passes. I mean, he had... If if you go look, anybody can pull up his reference page. It is a pretty unbelievable career uh, statistically that he put up. He ends up in the top five in passing yards, passing touchdowns, pass completions, and he started every game and ended up playing this last season in Indianapolis. And I guess he's going to go end up being a high school coach in Alabama. Uh, but good for Philip Rivers. Um, you know, I guess when when somebody brings up Philip Rivers to you, what comes to mind? What do you think about when you think about Philip Rivers? The first thing is competitor. I mean, true competitor. This guy was fiery. This guy um, hated his opponent, but I think had like a really healthy respect for them. You wouldn't catch him swearing or anything. He he had the this funny mannerism. I guess it's like a southern thing. I don't really know what it is, but uh, it just just the old dad, the the dadness of him. Um, you know, just just a guy who never got over the hump. Never seemed like he had everything there put together, buttoned up from a team perspective to be able to get to the Super Bowl and win the whole thing. But 
Uh, he was part of a lot of really good teams, especially with the Chargers. Um, and the, the final thing is, this dude always seemed to have a knack for whether it's his own fault for things earlier in the game or if it's another team getting back in the game because of his defense, having the ball in his hands late in the fourth quarter in a one-score game, uh, driving down the field to try to win. Like It always seemed to happen that this guy was in one-score games late. Yeah. When it, two things. One, when you talk about being a competitor, look, there, there are moments in people's careers that end up living on forever. Still, to this day, people bring up Emmett Smith with a busted shoulder, you know, running uh, against the New York Giants. And the same goes with Rivers playing in an AFC playoff game on a torn ACL. I mean, you can't want to be out there more than that. It was obviously incredibly dangerous to do that. Um, but it just speaks to what kind of competitor and a gamer the guy was. I had a, I had an interesting deal. I posted about this this morning. So... I was a Rivers fan when he was at NC State. And then when he decided to go to the NFL draft, he signed with Jimmy Sexton's Athletic Resource Management, which is now folded into CAA all these years later. But Jimmy Sexton is a Memphis guy. And so through those connections and the guy that signed him, Jim Denton, um, I ended, I was buddies with Denton. I ended up getting to know Philip. He gets drafted in San Diego, and I'm doing a now think about this a local radio show in Memphis. And throughout the summers, Philip Rivers would come on to be like a golf analyst or whatever we needed him to do. He would just be on the air. And he was always, you know, at that time, he would be driving back down to South to go to Alabama. He visited his family down there quite a bit. So through these incredibly odd circumstances, I got to know the guy uh, very early in his career. And I, I am here to tell you that all of that stuff that you see, and obviously, look, there's no hiding when you're mic'd up, but like all of that, uh, that, that stuff you see when he is mic'd up, I think it then solidifies um, what I'm about to tell you, which is that guy, there is not a phony bone in his body. He does not care what you think. He does not care, right? He loves God, he loves his family, and he loves playing football. And it's really as simple as that. But, you know, so many times you could see it, you could think it's an act, or you think, I'm here to tell you, there, there's nothing phony about Philip Rivers. That's not an act. That's who that guy is. And, you know, you haven't seen him in a million commercials over the years, and he's 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 one of these odd guys that is, like, just a football player, right? Like, you know about his wife, Tiffany, and you know he's got nine kids, and you know about his exploits on the field. Um, and that's kind of where it ends, right? Like, he was never, like, a huge celebrity um, like many of his peers, but uh, unbelievable career, man. And he's, a, and he's a really good guy. Now, what this leads us to, Warren, is that's now two at least playoff teams, you've got to imagine that Breeze's announcement is not too far down the road, especially after what we saw on Sunday, that that will be at least two uh, playoff teams that are going to have to replace their quarterbacks. But let's just start with the one we are for sure about, which is Indianapolis. You know, they brought in Phillip Rivers. They had this horrible deal with Andrew Luck going out uh, and retiring. And 
had the Jacoby Brissett year, the fill-in year, and then they went and signed a veteran quarterback, so they had Phillip Rivers for a year. Um, what do you think this means for Frank Reich? And as you are putting together your whole book for next year, you know, you start thinking about this stuff. Is this Colts go and try to find somebody in the draft? Is this Colts go and this is a ready-made team, so go try to find somebody that we can plug in and play just like we did with Rivers? I think that's a really tough question, Chris, because I'm not entirely sure um, what Chris Ballard is thinking about long-term, how quickly he's thinking about the big picture versus just getting back to to the playoffs. And this team is ready built. Uh, This team has a good defense. It's not as great as some people thought it was to start the season. Um, This team has a very good O-line. They've got a lot of pieces. They've got some wide receivers there. I mean, this is plug and play for a quarterback, but they tried that route with Phillip Rivers. It didn't work. And they still haven't answered their question, which is finding a quarterback. And, you know, look, Chris Ballard, I saw him answer the questions about um, how important it is to focus on finding the next quarterback, the franchise quarterback for this team in the draft. So it's absolutely something that they look at every single year in the draft and try to say to themselves, do we have the right draft capital? Do we have the right draft pick in the first round to make a move to do something to grab that next quarterback? I know it's something on his mind. I absolutely think they're going to look in the draft first. But if it doesn't fall into place for them, like where they think that they're going to be, um, I would expect, you know, their foresight, thinking about the draft out of one side of their side of their brain. Um, if they don't think they're going to be there, they're going to get aggressive in free agency, I'm sure. Yeah. And they plugged, you know, for these last couple of years after the luck news and 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 he retired. But I mean, what quarterback luck? Honestly, no pun intended for both of those teams, because you get. 16 years of Phillip Rivers, and then you move to Justin Herbert, and you've got your next franchise quarterback. They went from Peyton Manning forever straight into Andrew Luck, and now, for the first time in a long time, you don't know who the Colts quarterback is going to be because... And the tough part is where they draft, because they made the playoffs, they don't have good draft capital this year, right? Like, they have a low first-round pick from... uh making the playoffs and doing what they did. And look at all the teams that are in search of quarterbacks. I mean, this is a whole nother pod that we can do in the offseason, but clearly the Jaguars need one. You would think like the Lions and the Patriots and the Falcons are teams that maybe don't need one this season. Well, the Patriots definitely do, but like the Falcons and Lions are going to need one very soon. You got the Washington football team, the Chicago Bears probably, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers thinking about one, the New Orleans Saints, um, and and even like a team like Tampa Bay, uh, you know, Tom Brady is probably not your long term multi year answer. And if you had the chance, you would grab one. Um, so uh, and then you've got starting quarterbacks that like, meh, do you know, the Jets might be interested, the Panthers, the Broncos, the 49ers, the Rams, even There are just so many teams that could be potentially interested in drafting quarterbacks that um, I think there's probably not going to be a whole lot there for them this draft, to be honest with you. There's probably not going to be many options for him. Yeah, and so you wonder how they plug it in for next year. You know, right. what the, what they do for a starting quarterback. Do they find another Rivers-esque situation that is a stopgap until they can go and, and maybe have some draft capital? Or you never know. Some of these teams really trade up in the draft to be able to get there, right? They they package their 
first and second and third round picks in order to be able to move up so they can get who they want. But they've got they've got now uh, quite the decision to make. And Philip Rivers, good luck to him, who is evidently going to go be a high school coach from here. All right, let's get to the games. Tampa versus New Orleans. When that game ended on Sunday night, your overwhelming thought about what had just taken place was what? It was the turnovers. You know, we talk about how turnovers win and lose games. And in this case, it, it definitely did. I mean, you can't go minus four in turnover margin um, and win a game. You gave them 21 points off of these turnovers. And so when you do something like that, the, the Saints had the good fortune of having turnover luck go in their favor in the first game of the year, week one of the season against these Bucks, And they won that game. Um that's not going to happen. And I remember doing the show with House at the end of the week. We talked about the 17 times that a team swept the regular season meetings in division, which the Saints did, won both games, um, and how they typically win the second meeting by more points when they do win, which they did. Um, and then that last game in the playoffs, they've gone 13 and four. They tend to win the vast, vast majority of these games. And the ones that they end up losing are the ones, and we rattled off, I rattled off three of the games that they ended up losing. One of the games, they gave up a, a, a fourth quarter comeback. And two of the games, they were either minus four in turnover margin and allowed a defensive touchdown, or they gave away four turnovers and had like two, two massive amounts of penalties go against them. And in this case, it was basically a combination of those things. The Saints were minus four in turnover margin and had a lead in the third quarter that they gave away in the fourth quarter. Um, and, and obviously the Bucs came from behind and were able to win that game by one score. The thing that was most interesting to me about this game, if you try to eliminate the turnovers, which you can't do because it's a big part of the game, but just talk about what the foundation of the Bucks strategy was so that we can take some lessons moving forward to the next round in the conference championships against the Packers. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in their first five drives of the game, had just one drive of five that gained 10 yards or more. One. They were stuck, once again, on a run-first strategy where uh, they took the ball out of Tom Brady's hands on first down and ran the ball a lot. Now, it ended up not costing them. Obviously, they won the game. They also ultimately had relatively decent production on the ground. But the issue to me is still this overwhelming sense that not the Bucs are a bad team, not the Bucs are a bad offense, certainly not. But the Bucs could be even better if they optimize some of their strategy and their play calling. There's just far too many first downs for this team that's either a, a predictable run or a pass that's 12 to 15 to 20 yards down the field, as opposed to this high efficiency, short passing offense that Tom Brady thrived with during his time up in, you know, up in New England. So that was the biggest take for me is that we, there was a lot of people talking towards uh, prior to this game about how the Bucs had changed their stripes and the Bucs had gotten back to this passing style of offense. And we discussed on here, we pumped the brakes. We said, look, they weren't doing that against Washington. That's not what they did against Washington. Yes, they did that the last three weeks of the season. They passed the ball a ton, 68% of their first downs in the first half of the game. But they went back to the run against Washington. What are they going to do here? 
They went back to the run again, even more so in this game. And so I don't predict anything will change. I think they go into Green Bay, who has a worse run defense, and they run the ball early and often on first downs. They come out, establish the ground game, and they're going to have a little bit of success doing it because the Packers' run defense is much worse than the Saints' run defense. I was thinking about your philosophy on all of this uh, during that game because I was taking note of how much they were running the ball. But I, I, I will say that at one point, Troy Aikman defended it, mentioned it in the sense that he said, you know, he, he was talking about what the Saints were doing and how they were lining up on defense and that you have got to be able to take advantage of this and you've got to be able to run the ball when they line up like this because they are trying to take the ball out of Tom Brady's hands. They're trying to make them run the ball and the Bucks have got to do that with success. What do you make of that? Well, they did it with success. I think that's going to be, actually, you hit on a very important theme for this entire conference championship game weekend, and that is defenses that are going to invite the run. Defenses that are going to play lighter boxes and sit back, try to take away the deep passes, and try to force the quarterback to hand the ball off to the running back. And I just got to say, like from, from helping strategize for some of these games, but also having wa watched a lot of these games and, and just the overall thought process here is you got four teams that are left and all four have received outstanding quarterback play so far this season. If you're a defensive coach and you can just make that other team run the football because of the way that you're playing defense, then you've won. I mean, you may not win the game every single time, but you have succeeded because taking the ball out of the quarterback's hand and putting it in Leonard Fournette's belly is exactly what I would want to have happen if I'm coaching that other team's defense. And if you're the offense here, you've got to realize I might get a little bit of success doing this and I should stay balanced. Maybe I'm going to run a little bit more than I normally would. But what is my bread and butter? How am I definitely going to win this game? What's the easiest path to victory here? And it's probably not asking Leonard Fournette to gain six yards per carry on first down runs at the beginning of the game. I actually was a little bit concerned. When I was looking at this game to start, I saw that Ronald Jones was banged up and I saw that Ronald Jones may not play. And I saw that Ronald Jones, if he did play, he would play sparingly. And so I thought, oh man, I'm in, I'm in good shape here because like I think that the the Saints are just going to run the ball with Leonard Fournette on first down, and I don't think those runs are going to be very productive at all. What ends up happening is Ronald Jones ends up playing a ton, and sure enough, Leonard Fournette averages just 3.3 yards per carry on these first down runs. Meanwhile, they almost split the carries evenly, and Ronald Jones is averaging 5.3. So if Ronald Jones is in the mix, then he's definitely going to be more beneficial than Leonard Fournette on these first down runs. And you feel better if you're backing the Bucks that you've got a little bit of help here because Ronald Jones is by far the better runner of the football than is Leonard Fournette right now. But just in general, I think it's a great point that you raise. I think it's going to be an interesting conundrum that most of these teams are going to face. Um, you you saw that game in Buffalo where it was rainy and misty and windy when the Chiefs played the uh, when the Chiefs played the Bills in Week Six. Actually, both these teams played one another in Week Six. Both both games were in Week Six earlier this season. Um, but that game, 
The Chiefs ended up running the ball a ton. They had Clyde Edwards-Alaire. They were getting a lot of success on the ground running the football. Um, and the weather dictated that it was going to be difficult to pass the ball. Um, and, and so the game was pretty tight, even though the bill, the bills were at a massive disadvantage from a, from a yardage perspective, uh, the scoreboard limited the play calling philosophy of the chiefs limited the upside in how many points they were going to be able to score here and kept the bills in this game more. So you still have to trust your quarterback, figure out ways to beat the types of coverages that are inviting a lot of run plays. I think on the flip side, everybody was trying to be super nice knowing that it was the breeze swamped swan song and that it was going to be his last game in the Superdome and he he had meant such an immense amount to that franchise but there is no there's no there's nobody that could be watching that game that did not realize that this is they got a percentage of their playbook that they can't even run and that breeze at this point is a total shell of himself um and it was it was almost like kind of sad, honestly, to watch because like what happened to Michael Thomas, the guy caught 600 passes, you know, just a year ago. And that may be a whole nother deal. Right. There might be a they've they've had a lot of problems with Thomas this year. He was out for a while. And then they said he was injured. And we, we know that he got in a fight with the, the defensive back on his team. And so there's there's probably a whole nother real story behind all of that. But. Their number one receiver goes without a catch and Breeze is dinking and dunking, you know, the whole way down the field. Do you think that this was how much credit should we be giving, though, to the Bucks defense for what they did? And how much should I lay at the feet of Drew Breeze and that Saints offense? You should give a lot of credit, a lot of credit to the Bucks defense. They played really well um, for I mean, the. A play that, as bad as the Saints played, this is a crazy thing about this game, as bad as the Saints played, you have Jared Cook running with the football in the second half of that game with a lead for the Saints, looking to go up and, and, and put the Bucks away. And Winfield strip fumbles the ball, the Bucks recover it, and they drive down and score a touchdown, and boom, the game feels totally, completely different. But if Jared Cook actually holds onto that football, I mean, it's a very good chance the Saints, as shitty as they played, come out and win this game. Um, Michael Thomas, he's going to need offseason surgery, um, is, is the report that I was hearing yesterday, I believe. And he was not right in this game. He was quoted after the game as saying, and this is why it's, it's, it's difficult when we look at injuries and players that are actually playing, we think, okay, okay, good. Michael Thomas, he's healthy enough. He's playing this game, right? That he's in the game. He's got practice. He's playing this game. The Saints are a lot better because he's there. The reality is Michael Thomas isn't close to 100%. He said that he was playing this game, whether you believe him or you don't. He said that he was playing this game because um, it was going to be Drew Brees' last game, and he wanted to give it everything that he could. But what he had to give was very little because he was injured and now he's getting off-season surgery. So, um like th- there were there were definite problems with the Saints offense, the limitations as you indicated with Drew Brees' arm, his lack of ability to throw the football down the field. Um you know, they had to bring in Jameis Winston just to get an accurate pass deeper down the field. Obviously, that's a trick play. I have no idea why the Bucks weren't better prepared for that when you take Drew Brees and and you bring in Jameis Winston 
you got to think that they're using this guy's arm to throw the football down the field. And without Taysom Hill available, he's the only real weapon other than Emmanuel Sanders throwing a pass, which he's capable of doing as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a combination. I was very impressed overall by the Bucks defense. Um, I was I was aware that the Saints, after the fact, uh, were dealing with an injured Michael Thomas and they couldn't get a lot out of him. And obviously Drew Brees didn't look competent in throwing the football down the field. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerNFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerNFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your fantasy team, we know you personalize your entire day. That's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices may vary by state. Options selected by customer availability and eligibility may vary. All right, let's move on to Cleveland versus Kansas City. And Never in a million years did I think we would be coming on this show the week after the AFC semifinals and talking about Chad Henney. But Chad Henney had to come in this game. Cleveland, I I feel bad for them, Warren, because you know that the the Higgins play getting into the end zone is going to be replayed. That's one of those that is just going to be replayed in every Cleveland fan's mind for the rest of their lives. Um He's going into the end zone. He fumbles it through the end zone. It ends up being a touchback for Kansas City. And even after that game was over, I was left thinking, that is that is a different football game if that play doesn't take place. Like, I really feel like the rest of that game plays out much differently if he's able to get in the end zone there. But as fate would have it, he did not get in the end zone. And... Cleveland hung strong uh, for that game, and they had a chance there at the end of the game. And Andy Reid, I am fascinated to hear what you think about this. Is it gargantuan balls, or is it psychotic behavior to do what he did down the stretch of that game? Well, let's first let's first talk Browns, and then we'll hit that last decision because you're right that that, that was a very interesting decision that I really enjoyed watching, but. It, the game is different, obviously, if Rashard Higgins doesn't fumble that football. But at the end of the day, the Kansas City Chiefs didn't punt the ball once in this game. I mean, mm-hmm. their offense was not, even even with with Henny coming into the game at the end, they did not punt the ball once. Well, they hey, they, did, they did punt it when Henny threw it to the end zone. That is true. That interception was one of the worst I've ever seen. I don't know <laughs> what in the world he was doing there. But um, they, they, they would have scored three straight touchdowns to open this game, but for a bad holding call that they took uh, down inside the red zone that pushed them out. And, and they had to settle for a field goal on that drive. Otherwise, it's touchdown, touchdown, touchdown to open the game for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, but the reality is, I think this game comes down to, if I'm the Browns and I'm thinking like, man, you know, we we were close here. What went wrong? Obviously, that one play, right? The Higgins fumble that should have been called 
um, with the, with the uh, personal foul, with the helmet-to-helmet contact uh, was not. And then you have the whole debate about, is this a fair rule? But without getting into, in terms of fumbling the ball into the end zone, what do you think? I hate it. I don't like it either. I don't like it either. So at least we're on the same page because I know we could, if you disagreed, then we could debate that thing for a while. But the main problem that I had with so at least we're on the same page there. But the main problem that I had with the Browns was you're going into Kansas City and it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to get everything right in order to win this game. But they were very conservative in two key aspects of this game that I thought cost them. The first one was their depth of target and how their passing game was clicking. Um, In the entire game, even though they trailed almost the entire way through, Baker Mayfield throws the ball nine times on first down. Only one of those nine passes, Chris, traveled more than seven yards down the field. He averages just three air yards on these first down passes. That's number one. They're not, they're not aggressive on first downs. Number two. Well, yeah, yeah hold few- on real quick. You, you, do get, you do get docked for all these little dinky throws they throw to their running back. Those were driving me crazy, right? So exactly. What, what do those get That's, credited at? What, what, is that an air pass of half a yard? Some, some of those are negative yards, obviously, if they're negative. throwing the ball behind the line of scrimmage. And Baker throws six targets to his running backs. That's actually the next thing I was going to say. Those averaged one yard per play with a 17% success rate. So those were terribly inefficient as well. Now, I don't fault them for thinking that this could be a good strategy throwing to the running backs because over the course of the season, the Chiefs defense has really struggled defending running back passes. But once it's not working early on, you've got to make an adjustment. You can't continue doing that. Um, In the first half overall, which is where games are won and lost. I mean, I know, hey, it could come down to the fourth quarter, all that, but a lot of games could be won or could be lost in the first half. The Browns throw the ball 17 times. 11 of those are within five yards of the line of scrimmage with an average target depth of negative one yard behind the line of scrimmage. Okay. The pass is average just 2.7 yards per attempt. The six times that Baker throws the ball over five yards down the field, he's averaging 15 yards per pass attempt with a 71% success rate. So they're, they're throwing the ball. When they do throw the ball down the field, it's far too infrequently, but they're very efficient passes. And they never made that adjustment like, hey, we can do this a little bit more often. Let's try to attack this secondary. Maybe we've got some advantages there. Instead, what they thought what they could do is let's run the ball. Boom. Chiefs stuff the run. The run's not having much success. Well, then let's throw the ball short to augment the run game and use a short pass as a run play. Well, the short passes were gaining just as many yards as your bad runs were. So that really wasn't helping your offense whatsoever. Um, So that was one thing. And then the second thing that was too conservative in my mind beyond the passing game in terms of where they were passing the ball, how they were passing the ball, not the rate at which they were passing, but how they were conducting their passing attack. The other thing was the clock management. Um, when, When you are going into a place like Kansas City, You've got to end every drive in a touchdown, right? You got to end every drive with points and ideally seven points. Um, but you can try to go slower if you want, if you're lucky enough to have the lead, as long as you're still getting touchdowns. But if you're intentionally calling inefficient plays to just keep the ball, then you're you're 
you lose the game before it even starts. You've got to call your best stuff every opportunity you get. And if a drive goes by very quickly, it goes by quickly. If a drive takes a while, it takes a while. You've got to call your best stuff. And the Browns had two drives in this game where they were trailing and they took between three minutes and 50 seconds and four minutes and 10 seconds. And these drives traveled 12 yards and 13 yards. You cannot have drives that are taking up on average four minutes of game clock and traveling 12 to 13 yards when you're losing the game. I mean, you just, you can't eat up that much clock. <laughs> didn't, they, didn't they have another 18 play drive? 18 they had play. an 18 play drive <laughs> that chewed up eight minutes and 17 seconds, almost like the vast majority of the third quarter. They were trying to do that. The problem is when, uh, like you say, when it gets stalled out and it doesn't work, now you've just eaten up a lot of clock without any points. Right. And I, you know, to start the game when you're de- when you're going up against Patrick Mahomes, your strategy could be let's go a little bit slower here. But when you fall behind, y- your first two drives for the Browns are field goal and punt. The first two drives for the Chiefs are touchdown and touchdown. You got to say, dude, we're behind on the scoreboard. Let's just pedal to the middle. Let's just crank it here. We can't afford this type of stuff. But ironically, what ends up happening is, and 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 I think we all saw it, once Chad Henney comes into the game, once Patrick Mahomes leaves the game with injury, I think the Browns, for whatever reason, thought, okay, now we can go slow. Let's make sure we're right, but we'll score here, and then we'll score on our next drive, and then we'll win this game. They thought, like, we can go slow. The reality is they should have flipped the switch the completely other way. When you have the vastly superior offense, which is what they had at that point in time with Baker Mayfield and the guys that were on their roster, as opposed to Chad Henney leading the other team, that's when you have the big advantage. That's when you actually should be going quick. When you're the superior team, vastly superior from an offensive perspective, you want as many plays to occur in the game as possible because you know over the course of enough plays, the variance gets lowered and you'll have a more likely chance of winning this game game. When you're the vastly inferior team, you want fewer plays. You want more variance. You want craziness to occur so that you have a better opportunity to win the game with one drive or with one fluky play. And so when Chad Henney's over there, you don't want to go slow and make it so that Chad doesn't have to kill as much clock on his end. You want to go fast. And they ended up taking this eight minute and 17 second drive. And then they finished with a three minute and 51 second drive, which takes 12 yards and they punt the football and then they never get it back. So I felt like um, it was the lack of downfield passing and the lack of aggressiveness in the passing attack that cost the Browns tremendously, coupled with their clock management and those decisions that cost them tremendously in this game. And, you know, certainly looking back, all things happened the way that they did. And you're lucky enough that you lose Patrick Mahomes. If you had done a couple of those little things differently and even forget the fumble through the end zone, you you probably win that game if you're the how, if how, you're the Cleveland Browns. How much of it is do you how much of it is they just don't want to turn Mayfield loose completely? Like when you're talking about throwing the ball up, right? Like that those are those are much safer passes, as you chronicle. What they're throwing, you're not throwing into you know, two guys on cover in coverage. And when you're throwing the ball as short as he was, and you're talking about the distance that those travel, that it's raining him in, right? Like it's not, they, they didn't, they didn't need, and they didn't want Baker Mayfield to feel like you go win us this game. You go make plays, right? It's don't make mistakes. 
We stick to the game plan. And he has done a very good job over the course of the last six games of the season of not throwing picks. Um, he hasn't. And I, I just wonder... And and it might have been their downfall, right? Like sometimes you need to just let your quarterback say, go make the plays, go win the game, right? And it felt like maybe you're reining him in a little bit. I don't disagree at all. Here's my philosophy on this, though. Um, You seen The Wire? Yes. On HBO? Okay. You come at the king, you best not miss. That's my philosophy when you're playing the Kansas City Chiefs, especially in Kansas City. Um, If you are down on the scoreboard, you better open the whole damn thing up. You better just go. Like, and and the the frustrating part for me is it's one thing if these downfield passes weren't working, right? If the Chiefs secondary was playing great and Baker didn't go five of six on passes that he throws more than five yards down the field in the first half, but he goes five of six and is averaging 15 yards per attempt with a very good success rate. So you you've got to. Um, expand upon that. You've got to build upon that. You've got to stay aggressive down the field. Um, I think that they came in with a very conservative approach, which may have been the right strategy for them um, to say, like, look, we're not going to put this all on your shoulders to start the game, Baker. We're, we're going to try to play conservative. We're going to see what what happens if we uh, rely on the run and and work the passing in as we need to. And like, I like Kevin Stefanski as a coach, so I think that that probably was their strategy to start this game. But as soon as you fall down on the scoreboard and you see how quickly the Chiefs are working the ball or not quickly, how easily the Chiefs are working the ball down the field on you. I mean, I think their first two drives they had, the first two drives for the Chiefs, not only did they end with touchdowns, I think they had maybe one or two total third down attempts. I mean, they were just carving these guys up. um, And when you see that, you've got to instantly flip a switch and say, it's your show, Baker. Like, we're going we're gonna to go. We trust you. You got us here. You're good enough QB to get this done. You're having enough success. I don't feel like they made that move quickly enough. The Chiefs did end up with Chad Henney in the game, and Andy Reid gets absolutely trashed 24 hours a day for the last <laughs> 72 hours. Um, if what he did down the stretch does not work out, um, you know, as as the game is going on, and I, like everybody else in the free world, had a teaser on the Chiefs and am just sweating this to no end. And on second down, when, they, when they're going to pass the ball and Henny ends up getting sacked, which is the best thing that could have possibly happened to them, and then they are going to pass the ball again instead of just running the clock down to the two-minute warning. And then they're going to pass it again with the whatever it was, like the third and 14 where Henny takes off on the run. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. Like, this is – he was it, – it, it, it was such a tightrope of one of the worst clock butcherings that you can imagine, right? At worst, as, as someone who, who's got the cheese of this, I'm thinking, yo, just run it down kick it and what they you got to stop them from going you know 85 90 yards down against you and by the way on fourth and one they threw it to Tyree Kill <laughs> and 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 you're trusting Tra- Chad Eddie at that spot anyway that whole last Chiefs drive where they sealed the win were you going insane over the decisions that Andy Reid and the Chiefs are making or are you happy with the aggression 
I was happy with the aggression. I think what he probably realized is that if he gives the ball back to the Browns, the Browns were having a little bit of success throwing the ball down the field, and he was probably worried about losing this game. So he thought um, he stood better success if they just figured out a way to to get the first down and win this game. Um, yeah, the third down yeah, but play... But if it doesn't work out for you, Ward, you're giving them the ball with all kinds of time. That That is true. That is true. But I feel like... Um, Ultimately, he entrusted his ability to call plays and Chad Henney's ability to execute. Now, what they took that bad sack on second down that sets him really far back. So now you're in third and that forever. That was a good sack. That was a good sack for me because it's the only thing that would keep the clock running. Right. Well, that's true. It kept the <laughs> clock running. If you're the Browns at that point, you're like, man, we got this in the bag. This is going to be great. And I could not believe that they allowed Henney to scramble for as many yards as he did. <laughs> and End of the day, I mean, the the cornerback just needs to come up and, and and shut that down. I don't know what he was waiting for close to the uh, the first down marker there for as long as he waited there. Because um, Chad, any, I mean, what do you think he's going to do? You, th- you think he's going to run you over and embarrass you uh, if you try to come up and make the tackle five yards short of the first down marker? So, um, yeah, overall, I, I, I thought that what Andy Reid did, obviously it was big cojones, but it was... Uh, obviously the thing that wins them the game. So I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't complain with his confidence in himself that he was going to be able to put this team in the right play. And with Chad Henney, he just felt like, dude, this is not a very difficult throw. I'm going to find the right throw because of my route combination that I'm going to use here. That's not as difficult of a throw. What I loved more than anything is they get to the line and they just run the play. And this is the perfect time. I I always say, you know, you've got to look for every edge possible. And if you're on offense, there's edges all over the place. There's edges to be found throughout the game. And so many teams don't take advantage of those edges. But one edge that exists all the time is the ability when the defense thinks that you might call a timeout or the defense thinks that you're going to let the clock tick down to the end of the quarter, that they tend to sort of relax a little bit. And the announcers and us viewing at home and probably some of the Browns were thinking, they're not going to run this, are they? They're not going to snap this ball, are they? And then boom, all of a sudden, they snap the ball without even calling a timeout and look at what ends up happening. So uh, I, I think that that was the perfect play, the perfect design. And Andy just had simple confidence that this is a a super easy route. This guy just has to roll to the right. There's not going to be any defensive lineman in this path uh, for, to bat down the ball. And it's a quick dump off to the fastest guy on the football field who just needs to make uh, a, a simple catch and a simple pitch and catch. And it worked out fine. Yeah. When you're talking about advantages, that is also uh, beyond snapping the ball early. Another advantage is having a guy that's as fast as an Olympic sprinter on your team. That word, that word, that works pretty well too. I mean, what it's unguardable. Seriously, like there's nothing. It is, can, and we're going to run into that. We're going to run into that a little bit this weekend. I'm sure we're going to talk about the Bills in a second. But uh, Marquise Brown had some openings against the Bills uh, in the game against the Ravens, and uh, Marquise Brown. Um, I, I definitely think we're going to see a little bit of Tyree Kill finding some separation against this Bills secondary. Okay, before we move on to that, the the huge question and the one that everybody is talking about this week, and I it seems like there is a general consensus like, oh, Mahomes is playing, Mahomes is playing, but he did go out of that game and he was wobbling when he went out of that game, um, and because he was wobbling going out of that game. I think everybody forgot 
that he was limping around before he was wobbling, right? Like he was, he was clearly not his full self. His foot was ailing him in that game. You could see him favoring it throughout. And so it is interesting, like what, what version, what percentage of Mahomes and the full Mahomes experience do we get this week? And I, it's so hard to gauge because even, like I said, even before uh, you pass all the concussion protocols and you're able to play, they say he's having light practices. So the expectation is that Patrick Mahomes is going to be in the lineup. But it feels to me like everybody forgot that he was limping around out there before that, Warren. Yeah, he was. I mean, they're they're going to have the chance that they didn't have in this game, right? They're going to have the chance to shoot up that toe if they need to. Um and so that's going to be a big benefit, but you're 100% right. The the limp is a is a factor. The toe is a factor. Um but I I feel like first of all, it actually works in the Chiefs' favor a little bit that they were able to win the game without him continuing to ravage the toe in the second half. You know, that he he wasn't playing in the second half, so his toe wasn't sustaining any more damage or usage and now they're just going to be able to rest it um i think they're going to be able to numb it do whatever it takes to get him back out on the football field i also don't believe that he was was at legitimate risk of not playing this game um you know the the reports have surfaced that it was more like a ufc chokeout yeah. and that's exactly what it looked like to me i was i watched the replay i thought for a second he's going to come back in this game because he didn't hit his head whatsoever. I mean, his head did not get injured at all, but he clearly sort of blacked out a little bit, and it absolutely was the the way that his neck was being twisted and constrained some of the our vessel, blood vessels or arteries. I right. mean, I'm no doctor, obviously, but uh, he got rear he got rear naked choked, <laughs> rear naked choked, rear naked choked for a second, and he was back on his feet very quickly. When that happens in the UFC, and these guys end up tapping out, I mean, they're down on the mat for you know minutes right. uh, as they regain their consciousness. Here, he was up in like. 20 seconds, like walking around uh, after he sort of regained his balance. Um, so I don't think it was that serious, easy for me to say sitting at my house. Um, but I, I expect him to be back. And well, you know, that, I, to me, the, the big takeaway, at least because I read earlier this week that he he led the league in like runs for first downs. And we know that when everything is covered up because they're so scared of him passing the ball on third and eight. He is always an incredible weapon to just take off and go ahead and get that first down. He does it routinely. And so the question becomes, how aggressive is he? That part of the game, which is keeping these drives going because he just gets these first downs regularly with his feet. If you got a bum toe and you got choked out the week before, you know, do you feel differently about running for that third and eight than you did the prior week? Is that is that aggressiveness? still there for Mahomes, which is what makes him in part so devastating. I think it's an absolute important question. And I think it is going to be a minor factor in this game. Uh, you know, I'm 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 looking at trying to handicap that myself. How how much running is he going to do? Um, you know, there's two elements of running that Patrick Mahomes exhibits a ton in games. The first one is the obvious when he is running for first downs in high leverage situations. He typically is not running much in the first half of games, but in high leverage situations, third down, red zone, two minute drill, or into the second half of games when the opportunity presents itself, he tends to run and he does it 
I don't want to say often, but a lot more in the playoffs, right? He he has a lot more rushing yards in the postseason in these important games, especially when the games are tight. When he's up 30 points, he's not running the football much, but in tight games, games that he's losing, rallying for behind, high leverage situations, he's been running a lot. So how does the toe impact him from that sense? Um, the other element of his rushing the football is on these 10 to 12 yard dropbacks that he takes, these super deep dropbacks where he's scrambling around in the pocket to throw. He's taking massively deep drops to avoid the pass rush. How often is he going to be able to do those types of things, which really provide a dynamic spark for the deep passing game? He's buying enough time and he's got this arm cannon. He could still hit you if he's backpedaling fit 12 yards behind the line of scrimmage so that he can get the time it takes for Tyreek Hill to break free 40 yards down the field. And it's nothing to Patrick Mahomes to still be able to hit those. Is he going to be able to backpedal that long, that quickly, and still throw the way that he needs to, um, to make those big splash plays in the passing game work as well? So those are the two elements. Um, From a sports betting perspective, Chris, I will tell you that I thought the books made a massive mistake here. Um, they initially o- opened this game at at a pick 'em at some spots, and then we saw some books post the Kansas City Chiefs as underdogs against the Buffalo Bills, thinking legitimately that this was going to be a a hybrid type line where um, we're not quite sure if Patrick. When Mahomes gets injured, let's back up a second. When Mahomes gets injured in this game, the first thought to me is, "Oh, great." Number one, what's going to happen with the rest of this game? But I knew he was going to, I I thought, based on what I saw, he's going to be fine for the championship game. But I thought to myself, now we're not going to get a line posted on this game for a while because we're not going to see until Wednesday does he actually get a practice in. And so now, you know, it's Sunday night. Normally these lines come out Sunday night. We're not going to get a line for a while. These sports books decide to come out with a line anyways. And what they do is they don't take, they intentionally post the wrong number. Okay, they intentionally post a line that would never in the fate in the entire universe, in any scenario, this line would never happen. They post the the game at a pick them or the bills favored by one and a half to two points. That line is impossible. (laughs) If the game is Patrick, if Patrick Mahomes is playing, the Chiefs are favored. If Patrick Mahomes is not playing and Chad Enney is playing, this line is like five, six, seven points for the Bills as the favorite. The line is never Buffalo minus one and a half to two. But what they did is they said, well, let's price in a percentage chance that Mahomes is playing, a percentage chance that he's not, and we'll arrive at this number. Totally dog shit idea for these guys to post <laughs> that number. And so I immediately, when I saw it, I got on the phone and we got down as much as possible on the Kansas City Chiefs plus one and a half. So right now we've got tickets for the Kansas City Chiefs plus one and a half in this game because the books were totally moronic. And I always believe that Patrick Mahomes is playing in the freaking AFC championship game after what I saw. And we'll deal with it later, but this is the just the dumbest line that you could post. If you don't know if he's going to play, you don't post a number. If you're going to post a number, take a stand. He's either, you think he's in, so you got this number, or you think he's out, so you got that number. What they did with this hybrid line was stupid. Right now, this line is now three, and you've got a little bit of a battle. When the line got down to two and a half with the Chiefs favored by only two and a half, a little bit of Kansas City money came in. And as we see Patrick Mahomes get announced that he practiced a little bit today, um, you know, and he's going to practice more tomorrow, this line is going to move a little bit higher. 
Um, but there were also people that were betting the Buffalo Bills in this spot, grabbing the three, which I also thought was stupid because I think that the line is going, going to increase beyond the three once Mahomes is getting in full practices at the end of this week. And you're going to see the Chiefs probably favored by more than three points here. And so if you like Buffalo, you could get a better number than you can jump in the gun you right think now, it goes in over, my opinion. You think it goes over four? No. I don't think it goes over four, but I definitely think that we would see uh, better juice on taking the Bills at three or probably just as likely the game going to three and a half if Patrick Mahomes gets a full practice in on Friday with with no true limitations. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. All right, let's talk about the Bills and your biggest takeaways uh, for them against Baltimore. Um, You know, that game is, it ends up being defined by this 101-yard pick six that Lamar throws. um, And it's another one of those moments where a different game, right? It, uh, I think at that point it's what ten to three. So if they if they score a touchdown there, it's ten to ten. At worst, they kick a field goal. It's ten to six. Instead, it's seventeen to three. And and then by the next series, Lamar goes out, and that was all she wrote for Baltimore. But what were your biggest takeaways uh, on the Bills side? Because that's the team that gets to move on. Yeah. So let's stick with that thought process for Buffalo. Um, Look, you're you're you've played so far this postseason two defenses that rank inside the top ten. You play the Colts last week, then you play the uh, Baltimore Ravens this week. You're a pass first team. You're playing a, a Baltimore team that has a very good run defense that still has really good corners. But you're like, I'd rather pass because my run game's not as strong, and they've got a really good run <laughs> defense. So your philosophy is, I want to pass the football here, but yet you've got massive wind. There's wind throughout the course of this game. So for probably any team that was still alive in the playoffs at this point in time, it was the worst possible scenario for a team like the Buffalo Bills to play a very good defense that blitzes a ton, that has a good set of cornerbacks, and and you want to pass the ball a lot in this heavy wind condition atmosphere. So um, I think it worked dramatically against Buffalo's offense here. Um, This was an ugly game. This was a gross game. Um, You know, at first it's like, oh my God, these quarterbacks are sailing the ball all over the place. But then you realize, damn, they can't, 
people can't even do snaps right because of the wind and people can't, these reliable field goal kickers are missing kicks off the post because of the wind. So the wind was the biggest storyline in this game to me, and it's going to hurt a team like the Bills more than it would a team like the Ravens. Um, I was more impressed with the way that the Bills defense made adjustments to shut down this run game. If you go back to the game that they played in 2019, they limited Lamar Jackson and they limited Baltimore's run game. And so I felt like they were going to be able to limit it a little bit this game. But then I saw that first drive for Baltimore. I was like, oh crap, we got a game here. Baltimore is able to run the ball on these guys. But Leslie, Leslie Frazier and the Buffalo Bills defense made adjustments and just completely shut down that rushing attack. Um, like I said, there were guys open in the secondary in combination of the wind and Lamar's not playing very well. There were missed opportunities that if there's less wind and it's Patrick Mahomes back there, I think there's a lot more points that can be scored against this Buffalo Bills secondary uh, that will get scored this upcoming game. Um, but overall, it's it was this game was like survive in advance, find a way. This the the game is not right, the conditions aren't right. It, it's not a great matchup for you at all. And then, but doesn't that speak against, to how good the Bills are? You yeah, because probably like, you know what yeah, I mean because they yeah. can win a game like that. Exactly. Exactly. No, I think you're probably right. They got a good effort from their defense, a good enough effort from their defense, um, and they got just enough out of their offense. And you also have to account for the fact that Buffalo went into this game thinking we're going up against the number one blitz rate team in the NFL. The Ravens blitz at the highest rate in the NFL. Let's figure out how we can have success against these guys when they're blitzing us a ton. Where are we going to go? What types of plays are we going to call against all these blitzes? And the Ravens just never blitzed. They completely never blitzed uh, hardly at all in this game. And that definitely threw a massive curveball for the defense, for the offense of the Buffalo Bills and for Brian Dayball. It's like, okay, well, they're not blitzing now. So now we got to trot out this different set of plays that we, we think are going to work against the types of coverages that they are playing because they're playing something that they usually don't play. Um, and I think that caught them from a uh, surprise a little bit too. And then they made some adjustments and we saw like the first drive out of the locker room, they marched the ball 66 yards and score a touchdown. It was their best drive of the game. They follow that up with the 37-yard drive, which was their third best drive of the game. So they figured out what they wanted to do against this uh, Ravens defense, but a lot of things that the Ravens were doing early definitely threw a curveball uh, for this offense, as did the wind. Yeah, they did enough. It was that that was the least entertaining of the games. Um, maybe second in least entertaining was Rams Packers. I never felt, you know, even early in this game, I guess by I I, I never felt like the Rams were going to be able to win this game. I really didn't, Warren. Um, you know, they were. It, when you see they're getting Devontae Adams free, as they did, and there's this moment where Ramsey is freaking out in the end zone because it's almost like he got picked by his own guy um, as he is trying to race across the entire field to still guard Devontae Adams. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness gracious. Like, that, that is, that, that moment was, I thought, pretty symbolic of what was taking place in this game. And it's going to take one hell of an effort to be able to go beat the Packers in Lambeau. What did you make of Matt LaFleur's team and them coming out on top against the Rams? 
I I actually thought the Rams did better than I expected them to, huh. uh, given the conditions that they were up against. I mean, this was this is a one score game in the fourth quarter. Uh, they're down eighteen to twenty five. That's seven point difference. Yep. Um, you know they they were trading punches with the with the Packers early in this game. They they scored the touchdown late. And they send the game into uh, almost into halftime. I can't believe the Packers were able to get down the field in 29 seconds. But, they, but th- this is what the Packers do, though. And I think that's why I, I guess I had this confidence in them winning this game, uh, even as it got late. It's like they always get up on you and then they dick around. And then they hold on and then they score that one late one. <laughs> you know, they tack on the one late one. Like how many games? Seriously, I, what are they like the the best first half scoring team in the entire NFL? And then like this happens. It It's every damn game. You'll look up and you're they'll be playing like the friggin' Lions and you'll be watching. You'll just turn it off Sunday ticket. They'll be up 28 to, to seven and they're laying uh, eight points and you feel great about it. And then, you know, Andrew Siciliano comes on your screen and he's like, and Detroit's got the ball back 28, 24. And you'd be like, what the hell? Why am, why am I, why am I going to lose this bet? Like they were up by a million and it just feels like that all the time with the Packers. They get up on you. And then the other team has a chance to crawl back into it. Yeah, th- no, no doubt about it. I mean, they were dominant. The thing that I, I agree with you from the scoreboard perspective, I was surprised that the Rams were able to keep it as close as they were at a couple of different stages in this game, late first half, and then obviously late second half, late third quarter, early fourth. Um but you never really felt like they were close to being the superior team. The Packers, I mean, they were five of six on third downs in converting third downs in the first half. And the thing that was the biggest matchup of this game is like Devontae Adams versus Jalen Ramsey. And what the Packers were able to do early with moving Jalen Ram- uh, Devontae Adams around a little bit and him getting some releases against some coverages that the Rams were using and still having success in converting first downs. You're like, okay, Aaron Rodgers got this. Yes, it's a very good defense, but Aaron Rodgers still has this under control. The thing that surprised me a little bit um, in this game was Jared Goff playing in the cold with his busted finger. And you know what he does on first downs when he passed the ball? He goes 10 of 12 for 9.6 yards per pass attempt, a 75% success rate, hits multiple explosive passes. Um, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a quarterback playing without his number one favorite target in Cooper Cup, playing with a broken thumb on his throwing hand, wearing gloves. It's California kid. All everybody talked about is how's he going to do in this cold weather? And he goes out on first down and has that level of efficiency. So I start to skip ahead and it gets back to all this stuff we were just, just were talking about with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the early part in this show is the fact that they've gone back to this run game on first downs and how they had started off the season with a very run-heavy attack, and then they moved to a very pass-heavy attack weeks 14, uh, sorry, week 15, 16, 17, and in the playoffs, they gotten back to the run. And I'm thinking to myself, you have got this opportunity against the Packers defense to have, some, if Jared Goff can get it done with those receivers with a broken thumb on his throwing hand, Tom Brady absolutely can get it done here, throwing the football on first down. Do you want to rely on Leonard Fournette, take the ball out of Brady's hands and rely on Leonard Fournette to get these first down yards for you? Or would you rather rely on Tom Brady? And it's going to be a big factor because of two reasons, one of which you just mentioned, which is the first is that the Green Bay Packers have the highest scoring offense in the NFL in the first half of games. Matt LaFleur has a great offense 
They're aggressive. His play calling is great. He schemes up really well for opposing teams. Even when they got their ass kicked down in Tampa, they put up 10 points in the first quarter of that game before things started to derail themselves. This is a team that's able to get out, especially at home, and put up points. And the second part to this is equally as important, piggybacks on the first point, and that is that Aaron Rodgers, when he has a lead of any size at home in Lambeau, is 70 wins and only one loss in his career. The one loss came when he and Mike McCarthy's relationship was so frayed and so splintered that they lose a game to the Arizona Cardinals that they led at halftime and McCarthy is fired the next day. So like that relationship was unraveling for a while. Their game planning, their strategizing, their play calling was garbage at that point in time. That's the only time that Aaron Rodgers ever has had a lead at halftime that he lost. Now, I don't doubt that Tom Brady, which this Bucs team is more of a second half team to begin with. They rally late. They did it against the Saints. They've done it a lot this year. Takes a little while to get started. I have no doubt that they're equipped with a good enough quarterback to get back in this game. Like the Bucs don't, sorry, the the Packers defense is not so stellar that the Bucs can't get back in this game if they're down. But the fact is you're going against a lot of history here um, and it's not the most ideal situation. You got to figure out a way to trade blows early with Aaron Rodgers. And if Jared Goff can go 10 to 12, 9.6 yards per attempt on first down passes, I think let's yeah. give Brady more chances to do the same. Fa- fascinating that you say that about Jared Goff because it was a day later that the story comes out that McVay and Goff need marriage counseling. Like you, you, <laughs> you, you liked what you saw out of Goff and I don't know, Sean McVay and him. They went sideways. Considering the situation, I thought he performed adequately. Yeah. Now, I believe Jared Goff. I, I don't really like Jared Goff. I wish they, we had a discussion. Uh, I think that's a Sloan Analytics panel where I was sitting on the panel for NFL. Uh, Mina Kimes was the moderator and uh, Kevin Demoff, who was, I think is the Rams president or vice president, something like that, was sitting right next to me. And we were talking about extending Jared Goff. And I was kind of like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, and 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 so it was a little bit of an awkward discussion point because he was one of the guys who's going to have to make that decision. But, uh, you know, they gave him a ton of money and I yeah. don't really think that they're getting their money's worth out of him. All right. Last thing before we get out of here, because I know you and House are going to be doing big previews uh, leading into this weekend. I just want to ask you, uh, we saw Tampa stomp Green Bay this year. We saw the Chiefs handle the Bills this year. As you mentioned, um, we have a rematch of what were regular season matchups. Um, do those matchups matter in your mind's eye. Now, in fairness, we just saw a Saints team that obliterated the Bucs, turn around and lose to the Bucs when it mattered most in a playoff game. But, uh, you know, is it instructive at all for us to go back and check on what happened when the Bucs played the Packers and when the Bills played uh, the Chiefs? Or is this just its own game And that is not of great significance. So looking back at like the last 20 years, when a team has met their opponent once earlier in the season and they meet again in the conference championships, the team that won the first game is 15 wins and 12 losses. So Mm. we're talking right around 55, 56%. It's nothing overly dramatic. Yeah. However, in the last, uh, let's say since 2014, um, they are... 
seven wins and two losses, the team that won the first game. So a little bit more slanted towards, you know, the team's going to be able to get that same reaction to the game. Um, When you win by a large margin in that first game, if you win by like 20 plus points um, and you're not playing a team that you are division rivals with, right? So this is literally just the second time that you've played them. You didn't play them two times during the regular season and you won that first game uh, by 20 plus points, which the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did. They are five wins and two losses over the last 20 years. And since 2014, they are three wins and zero losses, winning the games by six points, 17 points, and 38 points. Um, so it it sort of favors the Bucks a little bit here. Um, but most of these games, that same team that won the first game by a large margin was the home team in this game. Now, we don't have true home field advantage, although Lambeau is a place where because of the environment, you get a little bit of home field advantage. But in those seven games I mentioned where those teams went five and two, the team that won the game, the team that blew out the team, these were all home games. These Mm. were six of the seven games were home games. So um, you had like the vastly superior team won by a large margin earlier this season, had the better record, had home field advantage, and then still was able to win this rematch game. That's not necessarily the case if the team is a, a road team. When you're on the road and you are you won the first game, you are actually only three wins and six losses hmm. in the rematch game. So it it's really not a strong enough no, factors, no trends. small enough sample size, yeah. no trends here to really say, oh yeah, this definitely favors Tampa Bay because of what they did here in, in one game that was played early, much earlier this season in week six. The fact that they won at home by large margin. And the other thing is Matt LaFleur has fared very poorly in games off of a bye. And we've seen that last year. We've seen it this year. That game earlier for them was off of a bye. So he struggled in these in those situations and they got blown out yet again down in Tampa Bay. They're not off of a bye here. They're playing at home. They've got Aaron Rodgers. It's going to be a, fa- a fascinating game. I can't wait to see the strategy and the philosophy of Tampa Bay's offense, how aggressive they get, what they choose to do on first down, how successful those run plays are that they inevitably will call too many of, um, and then how... Aaron Rodgers does in the first half, how many points he's able to score. Are the Packers able to lead? Will they maintain and build upon their 70 wins and only one loss when he's leading at home at halftime? What are the chances that both spreads are three on game day? Um, I think the Bucs are, are the side that's taking money. So I have no doubt that that line has a very good shot at getting down to three at some point on game day for sure. And I think there will be money that comes on the Chiefs. Um, and I think everybody who wants to play the Chiefs is once Mahomes gets officially announced up, is going to try to find a way to buy the hook or lay the three. And I think everybody wants the Bills. It, it just all depends how heavy that Bills money is when the line gets to three and a half, um, which I think it will on game day, how heavy that money is on the Bills that keeps buying uh, the three and a half and taking the hook like, will they force the books to lower the number back down to three? Um, or will the amount of public that's... And, and where does the public come in on this game? That's Chiefs, the other thing about this they're game. They're going to bet on the Chiefs. Well, the thing is, in this, in this, uh, in these playoffs, you don't really have any massive underdog team here, right? Like, all of these teams have 
lost very few games this year. All of these teams have been rolling down the stretch. Geez, also haven't covered since like November. Exactly. They haven't covered, but they've been winning games for people. And I just, it's interesting. I don't think we're going to have massively strong hmm. public favorites here. Like, I don't think we're going to get outlandish. Oh my God, 80% of the public is betting the Chiefs here. I don't think we're going to get 80% of the public is betting the Packers. A lot of the public wants to bet Tom Brady. And a lot of the public has been winning and covering the spreads by betting on the Buffalo Bills, whereas they haven't been winning and covering the spreads when they're betting That's on the fair. Kansas City Chiefs. So I think the the public betting action is going to be really balanced here. And, and therefore, I don't know exactly what the books are going to, quote unquote, need. Uh, it's going to come down to more so where the sharp money is and how much sharp money is coming on these games. But I I think we've got two great games, though they're certainly lined to indicate as such, and it's going to be a great championship weekend. It is. uh, I know you and House are going to be breaking down both of the games later this week. Make sure you stay tuned in to the Ringer NFL show throughout the week as we get you ready for the conference championships. Warren, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you then.